Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm your host and producer, Tanya Sarek. Last week on the show, we discussed how the decline in local journalism affected coverage of the recent federal election. As we know, a lack of resources and a lack of journalists has left a gap in the media landscape. But what's left to fill that gap? Here at Pull Quotes, we are looking at how the expansion of the space for focus, critical commentary on matters of public interest, is growing to try and address the gap of misinformation. Our editor, Ashley Fraser, joins me in studio now to talk about this. Thanks, Tanya. So to start the show, I wanted to play this clip. The wealthiest actually paid less in tax and gained more in wealth. It's true, StatsCan does show that the tax rate for the wealthiest 1% went down slightly from 2016 to 2017. Now, Daniel Dale joins me now from Washington. He's the Washington bureau chief for the Toronto Star. And Daniel, I don't know if you just heard uh, Paul there a second ago. He was saying that Donald Trump lied today, saying that most Americans are on his side. And he said that's not true. Are there any other lies or did you want to delve into that one? There were a number of them. Um, he was he was not uh, as hinged today as he as he occasionally is, um, and it was just a barrage of dishonesty as we often see from him. So he said, for example, that illegal immigration. So what uh, you just heard is the continued battle for journalists to debunk fake news, and we've probably all heard it enough by now. But are we really any closer to addressing the problem of misinformation and fake news? So to start, we have Anthony Burton. He's a researcher at the Digital Citizen Cultural Initiative with Ryerson University's Infoscape Lab. He joined us in studio and he is looking at how our information is being shaped by fake news, but also what the landscape currently looks like today. Here's what he had to say. I think that journalism has done a very good job the last few years with the tools available to it. But the problem is that the those who are contributing to this ecosystem are not really playing the same game as journalists anymore. So if you see Daniel Dale doing a presidential fact check on CNN, the problem is, is that the proverbial choir that a person preaches to, Daniel is the preacher, and the choir is those who are already watching CNN. At least in the Canadian context, um, there's this sort of section of like what we've kind of ter- our labs kind of termed the like new right new media, uh, where it's websites like uh, websites like the Rebel, uh, websites like the Post Millennial, and a few others sort of like linked into those uh, social media networks and like page link networks that um, they've really read the manual or taken as a guide uh breitbart and like the daily caller and all those websites effect on the 2016 american federal election um where breitbart and the sort of websites that spawn this introspection about the concept of fake news they sort of set the agenda in terms of how to hook into the ways that uh, we do politics online and the ways that we get involved in political discussions online And what has sort of happened is that they've institutionalized the very haphazard, uh, amateurish vibe that we saw in a lot of the sort of new media in the 2016 presidential election. And these websites have created and hooked into these pre-configured political audiences that we find on these platforms that might already be readers of Breitbart or uh, any one of these websites. And they have sort of also taken guides from the traditional practice of news. With What these new right new media companies have done very successfully is erode their audience's trust 
in these institutions in the first place. So while Daniel Dale might have all the facts in the world to back up a particular assertion that, that he's making about something the president said, these people are not approaching Daniel Dale in the first place looking for their truth. They've already been turned away from that entire framework. So it's not necessarily a problem that journalism can solve with objectivity frameworks and objectivity searching tools that is at the core of the profession. It's kind of a problem much bigger than that. From the trivial to the important, those are just some of the lies that the New York Times included in its massive new list of every lie Donald Trump has told in the first 154 days of the Trump presidency. So as you heard Anthony say there, sometimes despite efforts within journalism to fact check every story, it doesn't often have an impact on the misinformed. We wanted to look at the people that are responding to fake news and misinformation in the public space. So to start, we are speaking with Scott White, who is the editor-in-chief of The Conversation, a not-for-profit organization that provides academics with a platform to share their research and expertise. The Conversation is really working to eliminate fake news. Here's my chat with Scott White, the editor-in-chief of The Conversation. Thanks for being with us, Scott. We are focusing on the space that your organization occupies in this landscape of fake news. Um, so how does the conversations model work? All of our authors are from academia, and they write about their areas of expertise. And then we have a team of journalists who also have an expertise in the areas that the authors write about. And so the two of them work together to produce something that the general public can decide. So we call it democratizing knowledge that usually is hidden away in universities that people don't get a chance to get exposed to. Mm-hmm. What gap does the conversation fill within today's media landscape? So my background is I've been in journalism for a long time, many decades. And uh, at one point, lots of news organizations had specialists in health and environment and in education. And a lot of those specialties have gone away as the business model has imploded in traditional media and for-profit media. So because we cover those areas, we do a lot of stuff on science and health, Um, It is providing material for both new and and traditional media who just don't have that depth of coverage that they once had. And looking at fake news and other outlets that can be seen as promoting non-factual content, what does the conversation do to address this? Well, from the very fact that our authors are academics, that right away is is a perfect way to make sure that it's not fake. The added thing is that we have to have someone writing about their area of expertise. So it's either their area of original research or certainly within the academic sphere of their work. Um, Perhaps there can be a concern that maybe your audience might be self-serving for academics and people who are already in the know. Um, How do you ensure your research pieces impact public policy in in a broader audience? So one of the really great things about our model is because we are, although we have our own website, and, and we are there for people who want to come there. Most of the people get to our content through either other people's publications or through search. So therefore, we have to really make sure that the articles are written and edited in a way that they are not elitist, they're anti-elitists. We do our best to work with academics to get rid of academic jargon and, and you know less theory and more practical. So everything from the Smithsonian Magazine, to the Washington Post, to the Guardian, to the Daily Mail, to the Weather Network. These are all some of our largest republishers. So it wouldn't work if we were just sort of that elitist uh, mandate. 
Mm-hmm. We're anti-elitist, actually. Going off of that, there's clearly synergy between the mainstream media and the conversation. How do you find your organization helping the mainstream media in the current landscape? Well, we hear more and more from people who need more content. They need it for their own economic model so they can try and monetize it, but also just because their audience, they're smart people who want to learn more. One of our republishers is the Vancouver-based publication called The Taiyi, which is a fantastic independent. I think it's the model for um, you know new independent journalism. And I was in their newsroom recently, and they talked about how they love our stuff because it's smart and it speaks on issues that other people can't get. And that's exactly their mandate. So we're completely in line with the mandate of a place like the Taiyi. Looking back at when the conversation in Canada first started, what has the feedback been in the publication of your stories? Any given month, we're averaging this year about 1.6 million views on the English site and about 300 plus thousand on the French site. And the French site's only been around for a year. Combining the two, it's about 2 million views um, a month on our content, which is really quite an astounding number for a relatively new publication. How big was the conversation when it first started in Canada compared to how many universities are involved today? Uh, We started publishing at the end of June in 2017. I got hired at the beginning of May. I think the day I got hired, we had 13 universities and a couple of foundations who are funding us. And then as we gave a publication date, I think we got up to 16 or 17, and now we're at 32 universities who are funding us, as well as um, a few foundations as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looking to the future, how do you see the conversation growing and addressing the problem of misinformation? We're working with Mary Lynn Young and Alfred Hermida on a a new research project that they have. It's called the Global Innovation Lab. We're going to work with them on trying some new innovation things. The first thing we're going to do is to try and do a podcast around race, because that's sort of an issue that certainly in Canada is not addressed a lot in, certainly in the written word. We do a lot on race and on Indigenous issues, on issues of culture and society and how things are going on in society that really the mainstream media just doesn't have either the ability or the desire to report on. So we think that maybe doing it in some new formats would be very, very helpful, and we're going to try and do that. Well, that sounds great. And thank you again so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Scott is the editor-in-chief of The Conversation. The Conversation is working to try and address a gap in journalism. But we also wanted to talk to an expert whose mission in his organization is to help us better interact with the media, particularly at a young age. Matthew Johnson is the Director of Education at Media Smart, a not-for-profit charitable organization for digital and media literacy. He points to the importance of educating young people to address this issue of misinformation head-on. Thanks for speaking with us, Matthew. To start, how would you define fact-based journalism? Fact-based journalism really would simply be defined as journalism that, first and foremost, is about presenting the facts about a story, rather than the opinion of a writer or even analysis, which may draw on facts but has the filter of a writer's thoughts on it. All of those three of those are valuable genres. And, of course, we can never have fully fact-based journalism because there's always a selection of facts and always a choice of how how we organize the facts. But still, as a goal, um, responsible journalism does have priority of presenting uh, accurate and unfiltered facts. 
Do you think fake news is occupying a larger space in journalism today? Certainly, there are uh, an increasing number of propaganda outlets like Sputnik or RT that present themselves as news outlets, and unfortunately, many uh, aggregators and even social networks treat them as news. We also know that it's very easy to create a website that looks like a legitimate news source, and because it is so easy to aggregate or reprint news from other sources online, these can look very convincing, but may be actually vehicles for misinformation. There was recently an example during the Canadian election where there was a website that claimed to be a newspaper from Buffalo, New York, that had no such actual presence in the offline world, but was being used as a way of spreading misinformation. The Buffalo Chronicle lists its address as being 610 Ellicott Street in Buffalo, New York. Well, the problem with that is the 500 block ends right at this intersection. The building down there is 640, so if 610 were to exist, it would be right here, but this building has been abandoned for years. When we go back a generation, most of us had access to a limited number of news sources. Probably our local newspaper, maybe a national newspaper, there was radio and TV news, but there were relatively few of these. We knew them or came to know them as we grew up, and they had a financial motive to have a reputation for accuracy. So if a national newspaper or even a local newspaper got a reputation for being inaccurate, it would cost them money. Now, online, it's trivially easy to create a professional-looking website. So we can't use that as a guide to reliability. And indeed, sometimes that gives us actively inaccurate results because a lot of legitimate sources like universities or government agencies may not put their budget towards a professional-looking website, whereas purveyors of misinformation are well aware that that is one of the things that we look for. So I want to turn now to what you do. Um, Why is it important to educate children about fake news? All of us are living in the digital world. Even if parents choose not to let kids use digital devices until later, it's a world we're all growing up in. It is how we get information. And so What we've found is that most young people start using the Internet in a broader way around grade six as they start using it more actively for socialization and for school research. So that's really when we start more focused work on authenticating online information and learning habits of verifying what we see online. What we learn as children does wind up being what we continue to do into our adult lives. So could you walk us through some of the programs that you run to help children understand the difference between fake news and journalism? Probably the one that is best known would be our Break the Fake uh, resources. This is actually a public awareness campaign for general audiences that we launched just this October, but it also has resources specifically for kids in classrooms. And what this really is trying to do is to show that verifying online information is something that doesn't have to take a long time, that it's something we can do with four quick steps that once we know how to do them, generally won't take more than a minute, often will only take 10 or 15 seconds, and that in many cases just one of these steps is enough to confirm whether or not something is reliable. These four steps are, first of all, to use fact-checking tools, so to use resources like Snopes to find out whether someone else has already confirmed or debunked a claim or a piece of information. 
if you found the source and you don't know, you don't recognize that it is, whether it's reliable or not, we talk about checking the source. So do a little bit of research, use Google or Wikipedia to find out if it's a source that has a good track record that you have reason to trust. And finally, to consult other sources, other news sources, to find out whether they confirm basically the same idea. Or if you're looking at something like health science issues, to turn to a source that you know is reliable and see what they have to say. So you also educate an older generation. How does that differ from educating youth? With adults, sometimes there is a bit of an uphill battle in helping in making them aware that they need to learn to verify things. And again, there may be a sense that it is too difficult to learn or too time-consuming. So really getting across the idea that these things are fairly quick and easy once you learn how to do them. And again, getting across that idea that we are all responsible. So on the note that we need to be more responsible, are we making mistakes in journalism that can actually encourage the spread of fake news? In some cases, uh, you know, there's a variety, but I think journalists as well have to learn a lot about the new media environment. One of the things that we have seen is that media and journalism can sometimes fall prey to false balance. But when there is a strong consensus, including uh, a dissenting voice, even when, even in the name of objectivity, can have a negative effect. And we've seen that uh, quite clearly when it comes to vaccines, where the inclusion of anti-vaccination voices that go against an absolutely ironclad scientific consensus, including anti-vaccination voices, has been shown to be a major part of how vaccine resistance has spread because just giving them that space in a legitimate news outlet, in a legitimate news story, confers legitimacy. And it creates the idea that there's less consensus than there genuinely is. The other thing I think that journalists do have to become aware of is that platforms like YouTube and Google and Twitter are not necessarily representative of public sentiment. So we know, for instance, that Journalists uh, are very active and enthusiastic Twitter users, and uh, you know that has a lot of value. But at the same time, Twitter really doesn't represent the general population. And it also, like any online platform, it can be manipulated. And we've seen examples of trending topics uh, being manipulated on Twitter. We've seen examples of uh, YouTube and Google being manipulated in the same way. And so, to a certain extent, journalists do have to get a bit more savvy about um, how bad actors manipulate these platforms, but also that these platforms don't necessarily represent the general population. So what do we need to do better moving forward? I think that journalists do need to think a bit more about how their articles exist as part of a broader conversation, that articles are not independent bits of information, and that they do have an impact. Journalists need, in many cases, to learn themselves how to verify online sources. And I do think that the journalism industry has to become more conscious of their role in promoting those, those processes and those steps for verifying information. Thank you so much for being on our show today. It was very helpful for sure. My pleasure.
So that's it for our show. I'm sure the conversation doesn't stop there, Tonya. What do you think about the fake news era? Are you tired of hearing the words fake news? How can we better address this discourse as journalists? Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by Tanya Surik and myself, Ashley Fraser. Special thanks to technical help from Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna. And thanks to our guests this week, Scott White, Matthew Johnson, and Anthony Byrne. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you liked our show today, be sure to subscribe. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>